This episode on DRM was so meaty that we decided to jump right into a nine-minute segment of Drawer Talking with Christopher Levy, who is president and CEO of Buy DRM, about how DRM technology fragmentation came to be and the strategies behind DRM as a platform lock-in. After this extended clip, we resume the rest of the interview. You will definitely want to keep listening. Here's Drawer and Christopher Levy. This is really an interesting trend you're talking about. On one hand, you have these silos, and the silos include the software platforms, the hardware devices, the content, and the DRA mechanism, which is made by a certain, uh, by a specific company. Now, some of these companies have interest only in, in parts of uh, this type of ecosystem. For example, Samsung have devices, they have a software platform, they don't have their own DRM, and they don't have much content of their own. Uh, so now this um, collaboration with Apple is bringing more content, a lot more content to Samsung devices, and bringing a lot more devices to uh, Apple's uh, content, and and we all know all of uh, uh, you know the rumors about uh, Apple expanding their uh, content service uh, to be much wider than um, than it is today. So so it really makes sense. And the topic you raise of which DRM will be used uh, to enable this uh, um, collaboration or, or cross uh, streaming of content uh, between platform. Um, is, is really a, a very interesting uh, issue. And, and um, another point you mentioned, which uh, uh, you know I can really resonate with, is, is the fact that standardization has happened across the video ecosystem uh, in things, in, in, in um, uh, components such as uh, codecs, um, uh, packaging, um, uh, control um, um, mechanisms, uh, manifests, uh, things like that. And uh, DRM, although um, th there have been attempts to standardize uh, DRM, um, there has always been some uh, internal component of that DRM that remained proprietary, that remained part of a closed and siloed ecosystem. Um, uh, such as uh, uh, PlayReady and um, and Widevine, and uh, this always struck me as, as 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 kind of odd that everything else is standardized, and even the you know mechanisms of like exchanging keys in DRMs um, or uh, or defining DRM protocols, everything is standardized. But but finally, the key um, those very large companies do not want. To give up the key, the key is what they control, and it is the key of opening the content, but also the key to the whole ecosystem and platform, uh, which enables their own uh, their own platforms to grow. So, my question is, and referring to the fact that you also said that more and more uh, layers or, or components of DRM are being standardized, um, do you see somewhere in our near future? Um, that finally this um, content protection component will also be fully standardized and in the same way that we're now having the harmonization of HLS and Dash with CMF will have uh, 
uh, harmonization of of uh, of different DRM systems, and uh, no single company will control those um, uh, this key to the industry. You make a really good um, point that you know, in essence, um, DRM and Codex have had similar kind of evolutions over time. Um, if you look specifically at the DRM industry and I, and I, and not to make a short story long, but to kind of paint a picture of why we're at where we're at, you've got an odd mix of singularities that it would seem would leave almost no possibility that there would be a marketplace for DRM or that companies would have to pay for it or that companies would continue to invest in it. I mean, if you fall way back to the beginning of, of the invention of DRM per se, as we know it, you fall way back to a meeting between Intertrust and Microsoft in, and I think, uh, late 1999, where they agreed they were going to collaborate on some stuff. But then at some point, uh, when Reciprocal launched and decided that they were going to partner close with Microsoft and Intertrust made an offer to Microsoft, hey, give us $250 million and license our technology. And a certain gentleman at Microsoft uh, made the decision with his team to say no, only to later then lose a multi-billion dollar lawsuit to Intertrust. And Bill Gates wrote them a check that later allowed them then to go pursue every single company in the world that uses DRM. And so now you've got Intertrust who has a DRM, Marlin, that nobody uses in the US, only uses it in China. But Intertrust doesn't have a browser or an operating system but they own all the intellectual property around DRM. And so Apple, Microsoft, Google, Samsung, Sony, anyone in the world who touches DRM has had to take a license from Intertrust. But then Intertrust wasn't able to be successful with their own DRM technology because as I mentioned, they're locked out when it comes to having a browser or an operating system. And so they actually have somewhat abandoned Marlin and moved to support Google, Apple, and Microsoft's DRMs. But then you look at them and you say, okay, what would drive these companies to integrate such that they could be interoperable? Because that's kind of what we're talking about here is how are Samsung and Apple going to interop, but how is that going to help everyone, including HEBC? And what you find out is that, you know, DRM was clearly created, when I say created, uh, when it was commercialized by Apple, Google, and Microsoft, it was obviously done on two kind of bifurcated paths. One to satisfy potential looming lawsuits related to record labels and studios and artists and creators and content owners pointing the finger at these large companies saying your technology platforms are massive piracy platforms. Secondly, it was done as a, as a platform play to get you to use the platform. I mean, if we look back at PlayReady, PlayReady was a technology that was completely driven to lock you into using Windows-based technologies and Microsoft-based technologies. Now, if you pull that out, if you pull Intertrust and Microsoft completely out of the DRM discussion and you just look at Apple and Google, who really are driving the entire industry now, they both have been using DRM to date and on both those paths to satisfy the lawyers and to satisfy the lock-in. And that is just where we're at. But now the market has gotten so saturated Google has not been successful selling devices. The Google Chromebook is a disaster. The Google Pixel phones are not selling as well as Google would expect they would sell as the inventor and owner of Android. So now you get down to 
Okay, DRM previously was a legal thing. It was a lock-in thing. But now what is it? And, and I think what we're starting to see come to light is that with the movement of common encryption by, you know, different various parties, the movement towards CMAF, the movement away from AES-CTR encryption that was designed and play ready into CBC encryption, we're really close to having a CMF, CMAF file that using common encryption would have descriptors for fair play, play ready, and widevine. So we're getting very close to that. A deal like this that Apple and Amazon has struck, it really could be the gas uh, to the match. Um, I, I sense that there's going to be a push through here. The technology, Apple's fair play has gotten a lot of deployment experience now. So there's a big community contributing back to Apple. Apple has a very small team. If you knew the number of people working at DRM and Google and Apple, you would be shocked. And yet they're, they're converging. And I think the reason they're converging is that, you know, the consumer in the end is dictating what they want and consumers have made it very clear they want, you know, Samsung smart TVs. They want Apple TVs. They want Android tablets. They want Apple iPhones. I think both of them now are going to take a, uh, a little play out of Steve Jobs' DRM playbook and probably find a way to cross-pollinate their businesses because Apple's not in the search business. Um, you know, they try and interact in the home marketplace, but Google already owns the home uh, outside of Alexa. So, it's interesting. I, you know, to just clearly take one stab at it, I would say that we are headed towards complete interoperability and that has a lot of benefits. It benefits operators and cost reductions. It, it benefits consumers and less confusion and playback stops, but mostly it's going to give Google a shot at, you know, exposing their offering to Apple's audience and, and vice versa. The Video Insiders is the show that makes sense of all that is happening in the world of online video, as seen through the eyes of a second-generation Kodak nerd and a marketing guy who knows what iframes and macro blocks are. And here are your hosts, Mark Donegan and Dror Gill. Let's rejoin the interview with Christopher Levy from By DRM. To kind of just give a quick summary, the company... Uh, is one of the dark horses of the content protection and DRM business. We have a pretty well-known brand as a company. We have extended our platform out pretty widely in the business. So we have a multi-DRM platform called KeyOS, and we have a couple different components of it. We have the encryption tools, we have the licensing tools, and we have the player tools. And we're integrated with about 50 different encoder server player companies in the marketplace. We service some of the major brands that you might be familiar with, like uh, BBC iPlayer, BBC Sounds, uh, Sony Crackle, uh, Showtime OTT, Blizzard, Warner Brothers. And we do a lot of work that we're not really at the liberty to discuss, but we do a lot of pre-release work as well. So a lot of the focus in the business is on consumer media, but we also have a pretty significant business that's you know pre-release. So digital dailies, screeners, academy voters. We are very active in the academy voter space. We currently host uh, Apple Fair Play certificates for 
the five largest media companies in the world today, some of which you're really familiar with, I'm sure. To kind of fast forward, the the company is um, privately owned. We're profitable. Uh, we we own the company. Uh, myself and, and the chairman, Ron Baker, is my partner in the business. And we have different development teams based around the world. We've got our core team in Riga, Latvia. Uh, we have a team in Moscow and uh, a couple people in St. Petersburg. And then we also have some people in Paris that work on our Android and iOS SDKs. And our CTO is based in Vancouver. And the company and myself and the sales marketing management teams are all based in Austin, Texas. And yeah, just to fast forward, we late last year participated for the first time ever in the Frost and Sullivan uh, Global Content Protection Report. Um, this report is, you know, it's kind of a bigger picture report. It, it's, it's kind of... Uh, what they call content protection includes CAS and DRM. So we are listed in the report with some of the heavyweights like, you know, Nagra or Deto. But we were included in that report and we ultimately were selected as the entrepreneurial company of the year for our variety of different business models. You know, we pride ourselves on on having a, a very strong core DRM platform, but we also now license our technology. So we've expanded into India and all over Europe. And we have several large major gaming companies and media companies that now uh, run our software in their own data center or in their own cloud. So that kind of vision shift in the company, I think, is what got us over the goal line with the award. But we're just, uh, you know, we're wrapping up one of our best years ever, if not our best year ever last year. And we're just kind of waiting to see all the different crazy announcements that come out of CES. You mentioned our team is there on site. But uh, I'm closely watching the uh, announcements that Apple made about partnering with Samsung and LG because it creates some very interesting possible synergies that all of us can benefit from. Definitely. We're tracking that very closely as well. Um, I mean, let's start there. Well, you know, uh, the DRM industry at large is very interesting because it has become a bit of the political third rail of digital media, as I'm sure you, you all know, um, you know, at this point, each DRM technology is siloed into a global technology company. So if you start left to right, based on the kind of market, you know, availability of the product, you had Microsoft with PlayReady, PlayReady runs an IE and Edge and on Windows natively. Uh, you've got Google with Widevine that runs in Chrome, primarily on Windows and Android, but also runs in iOS. It's the one technology that runs on all three platforms. And you've got Apple's Apple Fairplay DRM, which really only works in uh, Safari on Mac OS and Safari on iOS, and it works for tvOS. It will also work uh, possibly on other products we may find out here soon. Um, I have to be careful what I say, but to to kind of track what's going on, you know, this announcement that Apple made about being able to move their 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 business offering over to other platforms, I think was largely driven by the tipping point of the the iPhone sales over the past couple of years. Uh, it's no secret that Apple's uh, last couple iPhone product lines have not sold that well, and so that's created kind of a tipping point in the company where now they're trying to figure out, okay, where do we go next? And clearly Apple has a massive media empire. They're one of the first companies to ever have a license to just about every song and movie and TV show that 
consumers in America are familiar with. And they obviously have a very globally strong brand, but because DRM has been a political silo to date, you know, iTunes doesn't appear on Android. It doesn't appear on Tizen. It's not on Roku. It's not on smart TVs, but that is going to change. And the question is how will it change? And to kind of give an example, um, if you take a look at Roku, who has gone through a similar transition where they were a streaming puck company, they were a streaming stick company. Then Amazon entered the streaming stick company and entered with Amazon Prime. And Roku then suddenly decides now it's a content company, but it also wants to continue to get eyeballs and users onto its platform, regardless of the direction it's going. And so Roku had to go uh, to support YouTube they had to work with Google to implement Widevine DRM on the Roku platform, which previously was a PlayReady and Veramatrix platform natively and solely. And so that, that model where Roku kind of stepped over the fence and implemented Google's DRM to get YouTube is an interesting example of maybe what's going on with Samsung. We don't totally know yet uh, what Samsung and LG are doing and, and we have our feelers out. And of course, We've talked to Apple pretty extensively about it because we have a very close relationship with Apple as one of their frontline partners in the industry. But I think it plays out one of two ways, and it and it is somewhat, you know, DRM uh, dependent and 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 Kodak dependent because of the fact that Apple is either going to allow Samsung to distribute iTunes on their platform, or really Apple is going to distribute. I say because it's an open app marketplace. But Apple has a decision to make, and, and it's do they deploy it using Widevine and reformat their application platform to use Widevine DRM instead of Fairplay, or does Samsung jump the shark and implement Fairplay? Because at the core of all these DRMs, the encryption decryption components are almost identical. At this point, all three DRMs use AES-128 encryption. There are some various different tweaks there with regards to the encryption mode, CBC versus CBR, but we're starting to see some standardization that I'm sure you're familiar with, with around formats. I personally believe it could go either way or it could go both ways because, you know, if Samsung were to implement Fairplay on their newer platforms, that would create a whole new synergy between Samsung and Apple that oddly enough hasn't been destroyed by the multi-billion dollar IP lawsuits that have gone on back and forth between the two of them as vendors and competitors. But on the other hand, I could see, uh, you know, Apple just wanting to push it out through Widevine because if they got iTunes to work with Widevine, and I mean iTunes video is what I'm focused on, then uh, the majority of the relatively recently shipped Samsung TVs more than likely could all uh, support iTunes, which would be just a kind of cosmic shift in these siloed offerings that all fall back to DRM, right? I mean, you know, Apple's got iTunes and Fairplay, Google's got Google Play with Widevine. So that, it's an interesting thing to see what's going to happen. Um, I, I am very curious myself. It does sound like really good news. Ultimately, it's interesting your observation about, you know, the platform lock-in. Um, I'm thinking back to when I was active in the DECE, which became oh, yeah. the ultraviolet, you oh, know, yeah. which was really revolutionary at the time because, you know, back then you consume content uh, from a particular store, if that was Voodoo, for example, um, 
you you were locked into Voodoo, right? And you know, if Voodoo wasn't on a particular device, then I was also locked into the devices. I could watch it on. So the consumer now is going to enjoy the benefit of this, you know, truly any content anywhere on any device at any time, <laughs> you know, so that that's all very good things. You know, Christopher, I um, was reading your blog and uh, by the way, listeners should definitely um, go to the blog. Uh, why don't you tell them again? Uh, I just, I, I don't recall the actual um, URL. Uh, tell them the address of your blog. Yeah, it's really simple to remember. It's just thedrmblog.com. That's it. Thedrmblog.com. Yeah, great, great URL. <laughs> yeah, that's that's awesome. Yeah, kind of like thevideoinsiders.com. .com. <laughs> no. Yeah, that's how it is. That's, right. that's <laughs> right. No, Christopher, um, I, I wanted to get uh, your comment on, I think it's your latest post where you're talking about HTML5, um, kind of the appless approach. And, you know, I appreciated the article. It, it was presenting a little bit of the pros and the cons of, um, and I think you were doing it in the context of in-flight entertainment. And, uh, you know, I know that people, if you're running a video service, um, you know, if you're Amazon, if you're Netflix, um, you know, even if you're Vudu, Hulu, whatever, you know, they have to maintain up to hundreds, um, you know, multiple hundreds of different player, um, uh, you know, SDKs. And I mean, it's incredibly complex. So the idea that you could perhaps scale that way back and just go to an HTML5 app um, is interesting. So maybe you can, you know, give uh, share with the listeners both your thoughts and the pros and the cons and give kind of a recap of, of that blog post. You bet. Um, and I mean, clearly that obviously is is also affected by the evolution of Codex and, and HEVC um, and others. But there's this trend, and, and the in-flight entertainment space is an interesting creature. I, I've spent the past two years researching the space because previously Bidurum had a bunch of clients in the space, but they were through third parties. So, you know, we had a business with Lufthansa uh, Technology Solutions where they were deploying our technology in Virgin Airlines, LL Airlines, um, Lufthansa Airlines, they put the technology on Greyhound buses, Post Bus, which is the largest bus company in Germany. And we also have uh, a little bit of business with companies like Global Eagle and some others. And we started to look at, well, what, you know, what's the opportunity for us to enter the space directly? So we started going and attending shows and doing research and talking to people. So the way that in-flight entertainment systems make it on the airplane is different than you might expect. The airline industry has about four conglomerates that all kind of control what you call, you know, in-flight experience. Now the in-flight experience, you know, the video piece is what we're focused on, but it includes interiors, it includes catering, it includes environment, it includes Wi-Fi, it includes being green. Entertainment's one component of it, but it's lumped in with all these other kind of aspects of the business. And so therefore it's treated in a very, what I would say, in a very institutional manner. To date, in-flight systems have been wired and they're in your headrest or that's a fold-up screen if you're in business or in your first class, it extends out of the little booth you're in. And you're limited to watching videos that are in a dedicated platform that's hardwired onto the plane. And that was the experience. Then along came satellite, then along came in-flight Wi-Fi and IFAC, you know, uh, in-flight entertainment, the connected version with wires. 
suddenly pivoted to in-flight entertainment overnight, which means wireless. And then DRM became a big topic. But what you started to see DRM really drive was the issue of, do airlines want to maintain premium content apps for their clients so they can watch content? Or do they just want them to open their browser, get on the Wi-Fi network, sign in, and then have access to all the content through a browser? There's this trend in the business where a lot of companies have gone the direction of the browser. So like if you get on a Southwest Airlines flight, you want to watch Dish TV live, you know, the implementation is there on the plane. There's a Dish receiver on the top of the plane. It's got multiple different LNBs. Each channel is switchable. They got an encoder on the plane that takes the MPEG transport stream coming down over the dish, converts it, encrypts it, shoots it out of a server on the plane to your browser. And that's easy and it's fun and it works. And it's especially effective for live TV. Stepping away from that, when you start to talk about doing things that are more efficient and and I think where consumers are headed, which is, you know, downloads, offline playback, bring your own device, the browser kind of starts to die because it doesn't work offline well. It doesn't do downloads well because each browser has a protected, limited amount of storage on the device it's running for security reasons. And browsers, the, the implementation, most players in them are not that efficient. And so what you find is that the browser is quicker, it's faster, it's dirtier, it's cheaper, but it opens up the door for a bunch of fails on the consumer side, which is decreased battery life, uh, forced to use streaming, which uses the Wi-Fi radio, which is decreased battery life, increased overhead on the aircraft. Uh, C, you don't get offline playback or download, so you can't download a stream and play it in a browser effectively offline. And Lastly, consumers are very comfortable with their devices. Like if I'm given the option of watching my 10.7 iPad Pro with my Bose QC35 II headphones, I'm going to pick that every time over plugging some crappy hand-wiped, you know, headphones that hardly fit, that, that sound terrible into a jack that's crackling so I can watch a screen that has a four-inch thick screen protector on it. The airline industries are trying to figure out, okay, well, what do we do? Because we're not OTT operators, but how do we make clients happy? And so they're caught in a, in a dilemma right now. Now, you know, I see it going two ways. I frankly think that live TV will continue to be in the browser. Remember, DRM adds some overhead because you got to decrypt the content. It adds some CPU overhead, therefore decreased battery life. When you move to an app, I think apps are going to be a lot more prevalent for VOD content and, and shifted viewing and TV viewing. The last thing that's going on that the airlines don't totally understand, and I've spent a lot of time trying to educate them about, and this is kind of a tangential issue, but I'm sure you can understand, is that every single passenger that's on an airplane, more than likely, and I say within a 90% or higher realm of operation, especially on international and business flights, have a Netflix iTunes, Google Play, Hulu account. And now with DRM, they can download all the movies and TV shows they want to their device and just go on the plane and have every blockbuster, every TV show, every highlight, every documentary, every podcast that they want to access on their device and use it in their own way, in their own time, in their own comfort. 
So that's kind of the big divide right now is companies are trying to figure out, well, we can save time and money on not having to build IFE apps and just go to the browser, but we lose a bunch of things that the consumers might want. There's a couple other things which are also driving that, and those are accessibility issues, which I think will drive a lot of companies to be forced to maintain apps. And those accessibility issues, uh, accessibility use on devices, you know, iPhone and Android have uh, different functions for people that have disabilities or uh, are motor, you know, challenged and aren't, you know, aren't able to use the device the same way they would use a IFE platform where they got to touch the screen in front of them, you know, and reach up and, and et cetera, et cetera. Secondly is multi-track audio. Uh, thirdly is multi-language caption support. I think those other three issues are much more gracefully handled within applications. And lastly, I think applications are much more likely to support advanced codecs like HEVC sooner because the applications are running on devices that are being modernized, updated, purchased more widely across a wider range of markets. And so the people that design the player SDKs and the, and the apps and the operating systems and the devices are much more likely to embrace newer codecs like AGVC than, than browser operators are because browsers update at a crawl. So, I mean, Google is the fastest browser updater in the business, but then if you look at Safari and IE and Edge, it's like, you know, waiting for your grandmother to mail your birthday present. You get it like four months later, but you're happy you got it. So I think that's the last kind of hidden thing is that, you know, within premium apps on devices and a bring your own device model, there's a greater chance that you're going to get higher quality content sooner with DRM than you would in a set-top box or a seat-back implementation. Yeah, this is a really important discussion, I think, for you know any of our listeners who are planning video services and maybe um, sort of uh, haven't been able to do that next level of research and are thinking, hey, you know, I can just deploy an HTML5, it'll reduce complexity, it'll get me to market faster. Those are all true, but you have to know what you're also uh, not going to be, be able to deliver to your customer. One of the other things that that I didn't hear you say, maybe I missed it, but um, I know 100% you know, to be true, is that um, content licensing in some cases prohibits, for example, HD in a browser or certain browsers or in certain configurations. So yeah, you may be able to deliver into that browser, but, it'll, but you're limited to SD, you know, 480p or maybe 540p maybe 720p, but not 1080p. So you're not able to deliver, you know, even the full quality. Now, you know, in flight entertainment, the bandwidths are so low that, uh, you know, I think 1080p is is not not very common anyway. But the point is, is that those are even things you have to, you have to think about. Well, uh, a researcher, David Buchanan, who's pretty famous, he's a young guy over in the UK who previously uh, was responsible for a pretty significant kind of white, hat hack that started to turn ugly. He's a pretty brilliant guy. He published some stuff on uh, Monday of last week that indicated that he had breached uh, Widevine's level three DRM, which is the lowest level of DRM mostly used in the Chrome browser. Now it appears that what he breached wasn't exactly Google's technology, but a third party obfuscation technology that Google was using to wrap up their content decryption module that sits inside Chrome. But 
it's a good example of where devices, especially Android devices, um, you know, they have uh, hardware in them that allows hardware assisted key management. So they have a hardware managed black box that sits on the device that is basically impenetrable. And so that's another benefit of using devices. Apple has the same thing. So Fairplay on iOS taps into a trusted computing module that's that's on the chip that's in the iPhone or iPad. Same thing with Android with Google's DRM. You can get level one widevine playback for HD and 4K content on a device. And then you can cast that out to a much bigger screen if you want over a Chromecast or over AirPlay, for example. So that's that's another example where, you know, apps are much more secure than playback in the browser. So what has to happen now is Google's got to go modify and they're in the process of, from what I understand, of updating their content decryption module for Widevine and Chrome so that their level three uh, use, which is what most of the operators use, is safe. But again, you know, they're operating on a non-native platform to them, Windows in the most most cases. Uh, Widevine also runs in Chrome on, on, on uh, Mac OS. But in those browser models, browsers are sitting on top of operating systems that the operator doesn't always own. And so that's, again, another benefit to, to, to using uh, you know, premium apps. This is an awesome lead-in to um, a discussion about AV1 and DRM support. Um, I don't know. Have you had the chance to do some research around you know, DRM support for AV1? Yeah, I mean we've we've been following it pretty closely. Um, we are uh, really closely aligned with some companies that are working pretty seriously on it. I mean we're we're very aligned with with Google and Bitmovin and Amazon and Intel and some of the other uh, people that are involved in it. But again, you know the big question is, um, you know, at what point does AV one start to appear in content? in browsers with DRMs. And I guess the problem that we kind of have right now is that that hasn't really happened. And they've done some kind of stuff playing around with Firefox uh, to play AV1 content, but really um, it's gonna be up to the, again, it's gonna be up to Apple, Google, and Microsoft, right? Because they're the ones that own the DRM and the browser. And, And so, so again, you've got a weird, it's, it's not a simple economy of supply and demand. It's, there's this third, you know, Robbie Botter's hidden hand that's influencing who's going to implement what. You've got HEVC, which is widely deployed, heavily proven in the marketplace. It's gone through some royalty and licensing politics that are pretty consistent that all codecs go through. Uh, I, I kind of wish sometime the encoding business had the same uh, oligarchy God that DRM has where InterTrust can just license to everybody and be done with it. But, you know, HEVC in comparison to AV1, I mean, HEVC, there are tons of documents on, you know, Apple's developer page, Google's developer portal, Microsoft's developer portal showing how to use their DRM with HEVC on different platforms and there are numerous, numerous chipset manufacturers, as, as you well know, and which we provided you a list of, that support it. And also it's supported in a lot of the browsers already, if not all of them. 
AV1, on the other hand, is kind of nowhere with any of that yet. But it seems to be, you know, a little less encumbered with the intellectual property issues. But frankly, I feel like as it gets closer to being deployed and people start to really get their hooks into it, we're probably going to see the same thing happen to AV1 that happened to HEVC. But I think it's going to happen before it ever gets widely deployed, in my opinion. You think when you say the the thing that's going to happen, um, are you referring to um, um, patent uh, um, accusations or um, patent infringement um, yeah, cases? Yeah, I mean, I try not to. I try not to pick a side because you know, let's face it. If you picked our entire industry, the two most research dollar intensive things are codex and DRM. You could build a codex and at the end of spending millions, throw it in the trash because it didn't scale. You could build a DRM and in the end, because you weren't doing a freedom to operate analysis ahead of time, find out that you built a great technology, but it's never going to see the light of day in the market because you are infringing on someone else's IP. I think what's going on with HEVC is kind of normal, right? Like, all these companies invested in it and and clearly they intend to see their return on the investment and they're looking at what happened with h264 uh, the patent pool stuff all the uh, the kind of the fact that we all know that there's quite a few companies in the business that aren't reporting royalties properly or have kind of jumped the shark there so I I think HEVC has a better chance than AV1 if I were to wait the two just because it's you know all the points I've mentioned, much further widely deployed, chipset support, browser support, DRM support. AV1 doesn't have any of that, and it doesn't have the encumbrances of potential legal battles yet. But I don't know. What do you guys think is going to happen when it comes time to walk the aisle with AV1? Uh, indeed, no, nobody is giving you identification against any patent lawsuits for uh, AV1. Uh, the companies involved in developing the codec itself um, uh, have signed agreements that they will not uh, sue each other or the um, uh, the users of uh, AV1, but um, this uh, uh, it doesn't mean that somebody else will not uh, claim any um, IP rights on algorithms used in uh, an AV1. And on the other hand, the conclusion that we that we reached is that. Um, the fact, it, it is well known that AV1 uh, right now is much more computationally complex than HEVC. Right now it's like a uh, hundred times more complex. And even the people involved in AV1 development have told us that uh, at the end, when everything is optimized, it will still be five to 10 times more complex than HEVC. And we think that one of the reasons for that is all of that sidestepping of, of patents, uh, all of these um, uh, techniques which try to be as efficient in terms of bitrate consumption as HEVC, but cannot use the same tools and therefore have to go in, in very uh, weird ways um, around those protected methods in order to achieve the same result. And uh, this is uh, a part of the problem and why it is so uh, computationally uh, complex. And uh, recently I've come up with uh, yet another conspiracy theory after uh, hearing that um, um, a lot of the decisions 
made, I mean, somebody wrote this in a blog post that a lot of the decisions that were made during the development of AV1 were driven by the hardware companies who are members of the AOM. I was just going to say that, Drawer, is that, A, there's no free lunch, uh, whether it's physics, mathematics, which is, you know, part of physics and technology and relationships and religion. And that doesn't surprise me. But what I was going to point out was uh, Oxum's Razor says the simplest answer is more than likely the answer is correct. I would say that is what's driving it because let's face it, I mean, there's not a person working on it that doesn't benefit from that. I'm pretty sure that Google, Amazon, Microsoft, uh, Apple, all these other companies sell computing software and technology and silicon So that and Intel. So, I mean, I can't imagine why that wouldn't be the case, but you make a good point that regardless of the fact that they're trying to ignore the three laws of thermodynamics, and I imagine they are you know, have a strategy for how they're going to sort that out. But the question is, will it, will it really work? And the other thing too, is if they don't adopt DRM into their message here pretty soon and start showing examples of AV1 content with DRM, it's just going to be another ultraviolet. It's going to, it's going to be shiny. It's going to sparkle. It's going to have all the right looks and feels. It's got a cool logo. Uh, the, the stuff on the side is really cool, but will people use it? Or is it just going to be another, augmented reality, virtual reality, 3D a year from now. You know, I, I sometimes uh, find myself almost feeling a little agitated when I'm standing or sitting in a conference, I'm listening to a panel and, you know, I'm hearing, uh, you know, either a panelist or even uh, Mozilla, you know, saying, you know, it's coming, you know, player support is coming. It's just months away. It's going to be in the browser. And then they start and I'm going, yeah, so really, so Sony Pictures and Warner Brothers is going to allow you to play their movies inside a browser without DRM. Yeah, yeah, let's see how that works. You know, like, like you know, and then you've got, you know, up on the stage usually or you hear speakers and they're throwing off big service names and Netflix is, is heavily behind AV1. So, you know, I'm not um, naive that, you know, Netflix is having these discussions, I'm sure. But the point is, is that DRM is DRM. It has to be implemented. It has to work with the standards, the the content owners accept. And by the fact that you don't hear talk about DRM, it's sort of just, you know, it's almost like, oh yeah, yeah. It's going to be in the browser. It's going to be supported. I'm like, that's, that's just not how it works. You know? Yeah. It will come later. You know, it's coming. Don't worry about it. I mean, never mind the battle that was fought at the W3C by all the media companies just named and a hundred more along with Google and Apple and Microsoft to implement DRM in the browser because they know that's where people want to view content on their computers, whether it be desktop or laptop. Sure, sure. sure. But they didn't do all the work in engineering to get MSE and CDMs working to then just all of a sudden say, all right, but we're going to throw it out the window because there's this new Kodak in town. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So, wow. Well, I'm, I'm looking at our time here. This has been an amazing discussion, Christopher, and we absolutely need to have you back because we didn't get to talk about players. And I know you guys are, are active, you know, also in, in the player development. And uh, so I think, uh, Drawer, what do you think? I think a part two should be players. You know, uh, Mark, it's really like uh, Christopher did make this analogy between Codex and DRM. Uh, in one of the first episodes, we told like the story of the Codex, how they've been developed and, 
And, and DRM, it's also really a fascinating story and even more because it's beyond standards that span, you know, dozens of companies. It's really a few companies holding the power, holding the key. And that's also the, the DRM key <laughs> to the whole industry and, and how it's going to develop in the future. Um, I think would be really interesting to see whether we're going for, uh, you know, true standards finally and, and much easier life for, for consumers to, to play their content any, anywhere. Or do we still have a few worlds uh, or do we still have a few years of, uh, of struggling? So really, thank you very much, Christopher. Christopher, um, your website is bydrm.com, correct? That's correct. And uh, the blog is the drmblog.com. And uh, once you guys get this podcast up and done, we'll go ahead and feature it on the blog. And I just wanted to quickly mention that uh, in the next couple of days, we're going to have a new blog post come out about deploying secure player SDKs. And we tackle a lot of the issues we talked about here in a generalist way. We do talk about our own SDK players, but um, I'll notify you when that blog is up. I think your readers will find it interesting. We're also have an HEVC update on our blog, but after the call today, once you post the final edited blog, then we'll go ahead and roll out our update that I provided you with regards to kind of where the market's at as well. Awesome. Awesome. Sounds good. Okay. Well, we want to thank you again for listening to this incredibly engaging uh, episode of the Video Insiders. And until next time, what do we say, Dror? Encode on? Is that our new... Uh, <laughs> and code on and code happily. And code happily. And uh, let's, yeah, we need to invent better, something but, uh, like uh, you can never compress too that's much. That's right. You can never compress too much, but <laughs> you must preserve all the original quality. <laughs> all right. Yeah, have a great yeah. day, everyone. Thank you for listening. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Video Insiders Podcast, a production of Beamer Limited. To begin using Beamer's Codex today, go to beamer.com forward slash free to receive up to 100 hours of no-cost HEVC and H.264 transcoding every month.